uh, part one of what I would say four uh, messages that I'm going to try to get out of chapter six and seven. The overarching theme is the apostle has explained the gospel, the wonderful news of the gospel, uh, the doctrine of justification and what every Christian receives when they are converted. And then in six and seven, uh, and you can see it, it's as, if, it's as if the apostle has a small child or it's as if he has a non-Christian, right? Someone who's never heard of the gospel and he starts in Romans one explaining why the world is a mess and, and why all these other systems that they have tried have failed. And then he presents the fullness of Christ. And then he presents the gospel and justification. And what he hits now is, what am I going to do about my desire to sin? What do I do with it? I've been declared to be holy in God's sight. I have claimed that Christ has wrapped around me his righteousness and that he's taken this filthy heart, he's pulled it out, and he's implanted a new heart inside me, and yet I still sin. Not only do I still sin, I still want to sin. What hope is there? Now, as I put in my email to you, six and seven are really vitally important. If you're a Christian, and if after my sermons you don't understand it, please don't give up. I've got lots of books written by lots smarter people than me, um, and, and I get overwhelmed uh, when I read it because there's just such depth, and you can take one verse and go forever. Um, but, but these two chapters lead into this chapter eight. And chapter eight is that one that everybody, everybody loves quote, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All things work together for good. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of our God. That's all chapter 8. And you, and you see it. Like you see it if, if you're a parent and you've raised a child in the faith. You see it. You're like, uh, teach, teach, teach. Oh, mom, dad, I sin. You know, I know you find this out about me and that out about me. Oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. How will I escape? Right? You see it. And he, and he says, that doesn't mean you're not saved. In fact, I would say the wrestling with sin is a sign that you are saved. For if you don't love God, you don't care about sin. If God the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you, you don't feel guilt. You don't feel sorry for your sin. And so the wrestling is a sign. It is a byproduct of God turning you into a new creation, into a new creature. So that's what six, chapter 6 and 7 are dealing with. Um, and so last week we looked at uh, the first 14 verses. And uh, the question in, in the first section was, well, this grace is so amazing. God glorifies himself in forgiving our sins. Why not sin? So grace increased. And I've thought about this as the, uh, the righteousness buffet. See, some people go to a buffet because they want to see what they're going to eat and they, and they get a reasonable meal. When you're a young Kuiper boy, you go to a buffet to make them lose money. You have it set in your mind, right? When the Kuiper boys and I would go to a buffet, we'd look at it. And, and what do they always have first? The cheap stuff, right? Right? They have lettuce and tomatoes and carrots. 
You know, the stuff, I, I always say, this is the, boys, this is the stuff that food eats. It's not what we eat. Food eats this stuff. And I try to get you on that. Get a big salad because it's cheap. No, no, no. We go right for the meat, right? And, and I think that's the thought, right? Uh, my, my God's grace has covered everything. Why not make the most of it? And that was the first portion of chapter 6. Why not go on sinning? Because God shows his abundant love in rescuing me from my sin. The second section, it's almost the same question. What then? We'll start. We will go ahead and read the text so you can stand up for the reading of God's word. Chapter 6, 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I think maybe overarching these two chapters, we need to remind ourselves that we forget. Uh, we diminish the fact that our God hates sin. Our God hates it with a holy hatred. He hates sin. And maybe that's the answer to all of chapter 6. Should we go on sinning that grace would increase? Should we go on sinning since we're not under law anymore? And that's why his response to both those questions is the same. God forbid. That's a, that is a uh, kind of an expletive in a Christian sense of no way, of course not, no chance, you idiot. <laughs> Maybe not that, but, but he answers it the same way. Don't you get it? And, and I think that, that's, that that is something that we just have to kind of pray for. Lord, help me hate sin. Uh, it's easy to hate sin when you see it in other people and it raises its ugly head. But Lord, help me to hate sin and sinful desires in my own heart. And, and the thing is that even unsaved human beings, we carry some of that in our person, right? When we see someone who is innocent, 
be victimized, the more heinous the crime, the greater our anger towards it. But do not forget that our God hates sin. And it is, it is at this point in the life of a believer that we need to be reminded of that because at this point we have accepted freely his grace. Right? So it has been free for us. Right? God's grace comes to us. He offers it through the blood of his son and says, if you will turn from your sins, I will take all of you, all of you, every bit of you, and I will wash it and cleanse it and your mind. And I think there is a tendency to belittle sin because we get rid of it freely. I make this joke before, and it's not really a joke, but it's an observation. We had lots of people that were raised Roman Catholic in our church in St. Louis. And the people who were raised Roman Catholic, that when they, when they were confronted of their sin, they would go see a priest, and it's called confession. And many of the... Uh, uh, Catholic raised Christians that were in our church really missed that. For them, there was a real sense that when I go to confession and I verbally say through a screen, hopefully they can't tell who it is, uh, I, I verbally go through all the things that I've done. I am sent away with a to-do list. You need to do these things. You need to say so many Our Fathers. You need to say so many Hail Marys. And, and it's, it's kind of comforting. I, okay, I'm forgiven because I did these things. Whereas the reformers fought against that. It's, it's all of Christ, all of it. it is, it's not your good works plus the good works of the saints and, 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 and you're being obedient afterwards. It's all of Christ. It is finished. But we tend to not think of sin as costly. Because all I need to do to get rid of the guilt is on Monday morning, tell God I'm sorry. I, you know, I was raised a Christian kid. That was once a week. Sorry, God, for everything I did. Not really even giving much thought to everything I did. Definitely not asking mom and dad to help me recount what I did. But this kind of ubiquitous, good to go. We have to remember that our God hates sin. So any doctrine that belittles sin, any doctrine and, and church and community of God's people that doesn't take it upon themselves to point out sin, to do the hard work of looking into your own lives and souls of rooting out sin is in great danger. Uh, any doctrine that would encourage us towards sinning is satanic in nature. And as we talk about the truth, let me tell you, as a pastor, when people shop churches, they ask for, uh, what's the music like? Well, my kids have friends. Um, how long is the service? Uh, your preacher's not a Bible thumper, is he? Um, and you, you probably had some of these questions asked you. But then you also get questions asked about views. And what's that person doing? That person is saying, uh, I've, I've got a preconceived notion of what the truth is and what I feel comfortable in. 
and I'm willing to submit to what I choose to have taught to me. The question you should ask, does your church hold close to the scriptures? When anything is unknown, do they fall on the scriptures? Any doctrine that would belittle sin. And that's what he's saying here. If somehow you're able to get through those first five chapters of Romans and think that at the end of those five chapters, now you are free to sin, you have not grasped the gospel. You have not grasped the absolute holiness and love and purity of your heavenly father. You have not grasped that the part of the gospel is his own perfectly pure and holy son had to die in your place to remove sin. Of course, God wouldn't want us to continue in sin. God forbid, he says in verse 15, by no means. Now, we must hold true to this because we live in an environment that is really relentless in redefining sin. It's nothing new. Um, Our world has always done this lowering, lowering the holiness of God, belittling the commandments of God, saying we live under grace, not under law, so we don't even need to know what the law says. Um, And so it's interesting, today you hear words like mistakes. God, forgive me for my mistakes. Now you can pray that after a math quiz, okay? But but our sins are not mistakes. They're not, whoops, uh uh-oh, I forgot. Our sins are an outward rebellion against God and His holiness and His best, best for us and for others. Um, So anyway, that's why we at Three Rivers have the audacity to do a corporate confession of sin every week. It's why in my sermons I have portions that I write. What is the fallen condition? What sinful attitude, behavior, or belief is God addressing in His Word? What part of of this gospel of God are we not holding to that we need to re-up our commitment to? All right, so as we go through this text this morning, um, I I think in the the notes I have terms and conditions. Um, It's important for us to understand some of the terms that are used. Uh, These terms, servant, bondservant, slavery, uh, we, we hold those in with sonship, adoption. All right, so... Um, James says, this is how he introduces himself in his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, we are told Jesus, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes to the Ephesian elders and says, but as bond servants as Christ, that's who we are, and we are doing the will of God from the heart. So this concept of slaves, our default is to, of course, think about slavery in America, Slavery towards a certain ethnic group or a color of skin. Uh, slavery in America. And it was different in those days. And if you read through the Old Testament laws, uh, the slavery that we had in the U.S. in its worst pictures was absolutely forbidden by the scriptures. So he's not talking about that manner of slavery. In fact, if you read in Deuteronomy 15... Um, this is a, the sabbatical year. 
if your brother, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. So many people would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. And so we have the term bond servant, which, which kind of fleshes it out a bit more. Now, there were also in those days slaves of war. Right? There were, there were slaves of war. Uh, in Deuteronomy, if, if someone is caught buying and selling human beings, they receive the death penalty. All right? So I just want you to know, in the, in the ancient world, slavery was happening all manner of forms. But when we use the term here, slave master, you really go from a slave master, Satan, the world, and sin, to bondservant, uh, the master we long to belong to. Deuteronomy goes on to say, you let him go free, you'll furnish him liberally out of your flock and of your threshing floor, your wine press. As the Lord has blessed you, you shall give to him. So what happened was things would get so bad for a man, he couldn't provide for his family and he would sell himself into slavery. And it was for a specific amount of time. Uh, the Jews were not to keep them beyond seven years they were to be set free and when they were set free they were to be blessed and sent with an abundance you shall remember he says in verse 15 that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you therefore I command you this today but verse 16 this is beautiful okay this is the Old Testament Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 16 but if he says to you I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. So there is an expectation in that type of slavery that there will be those slaves who indenture themselves to you. Their time comes up, they're free, they're going to get a year-end bonus and be sent off with some goats. And, 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 and the servant says, No, I have a loved serving in your house. Please keep me. Here's what would happen. Then you shall take an awl, sharp metal poker, and you'll put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. So you know I did that to my son-in-law. No, I didn't. And to your female slaves, you shall do the same. It shall not seem harm to you when you let them go free from you at, for at half the cost of a hired worker they've served you. So the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. So the picture there is that the slave himself says, it is better for me to be in your household than to go free. When I was free on my own, it led me to this. It led me to despair and need, and you have blessed me, and you have worked me fairly. I want to remain. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He would say, I want to remain. And they take an awl and they do, their, they do their ear piercing, right? Did men have pierced ears? Yes. Only the bond servants, right? Pierce it to the door of the household. You belong to me. You are part of our family. In 1863, we got the final version of the Emancipation Proclamation. The first version was in 1862. It needed to be changed. In 1863, uh, we get the, the final version of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it, it's Abraham Lincoln proclaims as president. He proclaims these six things. Uh, first, he declared forever free 
more than three and a half million slaves in the Confederate areas still in rebellion against the Union. Two, he promised that the federal government and military would recognize and maintain the freedom of the freed slaves. Three, he did not free almost half a million slaves that were in the border states loyal to the Union. So Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, Kentucky, and in some other areas under Union control. He asked the free slaves to avoid violence unless it was self-defense and recommend they work for their wages. And he announced that all the African-American men were eligible to enlist in the Union Army. He described these actions as an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity. Now, if you read about Reconstruction in the South, you see that it was not easy for the emancipated slaves. You also see that there was some ulterior motives, probably, uh, to his freeing. The fact that he didn't free the ones that were under Union control. The fact that he didn't free the ones in the North. Uh, but he freed them, it seems, and it would appear, I'm no historian, but it would seem and appear uh, that they were free to help his war effort, make it harder for the South, and maybe get some soldiers. But if you read about Reconstruction in the South, it was very difficult. In fact, if you go to the Mississippi Delta, even today, you'll see that there are these huge fields, plantations, uh, and it's hard, hard for many that were brought up in that from generations to even know how to make money, how to survive. And so many of the slaves would go back to their masters and say, uh, okay, well, can we negotiate now uh, for pay? And so when we talk about emancipation, um, the, the human being that is freed from the slavery of sin is received by a new master. You're not freed and left on your own. It's not some magical switch in heaven when you pray that sinner's prayer. Now you're free and hopefully you'll try to do good because I did a lot of good for you, right? And you should show me that you're thankful by being a good Christian person and doing these things. No, the apostle's saying that, that that image is wrong. You've been freed from a master who desired to kill and destroy and abuse. And you've been joined to a master who desires to give abundant life, sanctification, and glorification. So the sermon in the sentence this morning, I finally got to it, is that the wonderful news of the gospel of grace is not just the freedom from enslavement and punishment of sin, but the joining of ourselves to the real master. Now I got four points, and it's 11.05. Typical Kuiper. Uh... Let's just kind of, we can, we can get through this, all right? Everybody sit up, ready? Here we go. Get your pens out, here we go. First was the concept, we've talked about that. But he says in verse 16, don't you know this? Are you not aware of this? Um, you are slaves of the one you serve. Oh, you think you're free? No, you're not free. You are slaves of the one you serve. Before Christ, we lived under the illusion and we lived in a universe uh, like the Spider-Verse or the metaverse, we lived in some kind of universe that we had created that said we were free. And the truth is you were not free. You were slaves to sin. Uh, you thought about what must I do? What must I accomplish? What must I win? What must I have? What must people know about me or think about me? 
So he says, whatever controls you, that demand forms you. And he says, you, you think you're free. And it, the best thing I can think about is someone who has suffered an addiction that has been debilitating, that has cost them so much, slipping back into that addiction. I'm thinking maybe this time I can control it. I can just have this much. He says, no, you weren't free. You were a slave. You are a slave to that which you obey, to that which controls you. You are a slave to that which you serve. But you were freed. Now, I, he is absolutely talking to Christian people here because the Christian is the one that is free. The non-Christian is not free. That's why we don't approach the non-Christian and tell them, if you keep these commandments, God will accept you. No, we, we, they, they can't keep those commandments. Can't keep those commandments from the heart. We go to the Christian and say, if you repent and turn and surrender to Christ, he will save you, he will rescue you, he will make you a new creation. And then his commands will be life to you. Don't you know this, he says? Secondly, he says, but, but that's what you once were in verse 17. He said, but you were, you were converted. You were emancipated. Look at verse 17. That, that, you were slave to this, but thanks be to God. That who, you who were once slaves now have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you have been committed. You have been freed. That is what you once were. But thanks be to God because he has done this and we've talked about a standard of teaching and he talks about that that's what you are committed to that you have committed yourself to being obedient to a standard of teaching oh christian you must know his word you must take it upon yourself to be students of god's word he has given us this wonderful treasure in his word and says you can know me you can know me because the teaching, he says, we, we're obedient from the heart. Let me just put it this way simply. We, we said that God hates sin. Do you love God? Right? There's, there's, there's things that I don't do because I love Tammy. And at the depth of my soul, I want to go catfish grabbing. And for some reason, years ago... I promised her that I wouldn't do it. I can't forget that promise. It's something I want to do. It's something she doesn't want me to do. I went bear hunting with a bow and arrow. She was a little concerned. But do you realize God hates sin? And if you love God, you will seek what pleases him. It'll be the, the love of God that compels you in a familial relationship, in an intimate relationship with your Creator. God hates sin. Do you love God? Then you too should hate sin. When Jordan was dating Taylor, man, we were all on edge the first few times she came to the house. She doesn't like this. She doesn't like this. Will you take the dog and lock him up because she doesn't like it when a dog sniffs her? I'm like, nobody does, son. Uh, but but it, it was just like, we want to make sure that she is happy with us. 
Uh, he said, you have been freed. Thanks be to God. He has given us a standard of teaching. He has given us himself. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. And so he, he will lead us in a way. All through scripture, we call this the new and the living hope. My friend Jordan, my, my friend, my son Jordan, uh, it's his Sunday. It's this week, it's the Jordan week. So uh, Jordan has a friend who was smuggled from Albania. He and his brother shoved in a washing machine. Now that friend is a multi-millionaire and loves our country. He gets so frustrated when people burn flags, when people do this, when people do that. And um, he, of his own accord, chose, right, at great cost. And it was actually, it was quite risky for his family to get their two children to safety. But what did he do? He left a regime that didn't value the life of a human being. They were part of the machine. They were part of the cog. He, he, he left a regime and was smuggled to another regime with its rules and with its laws that he liked better. Now, there's no way that that, that guy is going to say, I really, really want to go back to this. And it's in that same manner that he's saying, you were this. Right? It's, it's, it's almost mind-blowing in numbers when the people say to Moses, we, we don't like knowing that we don't know where we're going. We don't like having this food that's provided. Uh, we don't like wandering around. Can we go back to Egypt? Right? And it's amazing. Can we go back to Egypt where our, our masters beat us? Where we had to build buildings without straw. We had to go gather it. Let's go back there where they took the male children and they threw them in the river. That, oh, human being, is how we forget. And so he says, oh, don't you not know that? That's who you were. But thanks be to God, he has rescued us. Sometimes I think the conversion of an American is tougher uh, because it is almost like it hasn't cost us much. Uh, it hasn't cost us much. We haven't, we haven't really faced uh, a regime that is completely and totally against Christian principles in life. But, um, yeah, I thought about that. That, that. that man would never, ever want to go back. Conversion for us, it is a surrender, really, of our minds and our hearts uh, from a master that promised and didn't fulfill to a master that is holy and good. I'm not going to reread the meditation from the bulletin this morning, but I, I do love the way Schaefer puts it, that we are yielding to a God who is beautiful. Uh, thirdly, in verses 19 to 22, the apostle says, let me also remind you of the consequences. When you are a Christian, uh, you can still present yourself to sin, but do you not forget that sin led to more sin Satan was never, ever satisfied with a small compromise. It always led to more and deeper and deeper sin. And eventually it led to death. And the consequences of presenting yourself to God in obedience is sanctification. As one writer puts it, it is the creature glorified. 
And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's absolutely what the gospel does to a human being. It, it, it removes them from slavery and their world gets bigger. Everything has meaning now. Everything. Your job, your family, your work, your illness. Everything has meaning. Everything has ultimate purpose. He says that, that, that's, that's, that's the consequence of putting yourself in the bond servitude of God Almighty. Think about what happened just in the lives of the disciples. Ordinary fishermen. When the Jerusalem council meets, when the Sanhedrin meets uh, to hold the, the disciples, it says, are these the men who have overturned the world? These were just fishermen. And they've turned the world upside down. And then it says they took notice that they had been with Jesus. Uh, in conclusion, verse 23, it's one of the famous verses from Romans. The wages of sin is death, the gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse belongs here. It is a reminder to Christians that you still will sin. You now are free and your sin is more heinous to God than it was before you were his because you've now been a child adopted into his family. And so we should hate the things he hates. But it is a reminder to us that the Christians still sin and the result of our sin is still death and further sin and pain and hurt. It's important that we grasp this because many people turn away from the gospel because they've been hurt by Christians. Uh, this Christian lied to me. This Christian stole from me. I was in partnership with a Christian, and he did this. The wages of sin is death. And I think it's there as a, as a, as a reminder and as a warning to us that we, we can continue in sin. It doesn't mean we haven't been justified. It doesn't mean we haven't been saved. But he says, just remember this, O Christian, that now that you belong to him, now that your sins are covered, what sin does, it still will do. But even in chapter 6, the gospel. But, oh Christian, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we would take our battle with sin to the next level for whatever that means for us. Father, for some of us, we, we need a, a, a full dose of what you think about sin. Some of us, Father, we, we may need a full dose of the act of righteousness of Christ before we can even think about being honest about ourselves and our failings. We just need, we, we need some more of you, Jesus. We just need to, we just need you, Father. Just remind us that we stand in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we trust that you know us better than ourselves. That you will bring to light those things that you are ready to work on in our lives. May we see this, Father, as the fruit of righteousness, as the fruit of your gospel. May we see being sanctified as a beautiful thing as the giving of more life rather than the uh, not doing this anymore, not doing that anymore, of having life grow bigger. Father, now will you 
set these elements aside for us as we come to this table. We would be reminded of the sufficiency of our Savior. That his body has taken our place. That it does two things. It does tell us how much you did hate sin. And in the same instant, it tells us how much you love us. May we feast on this in our hearts and in our minds. May we grow in our love for your law and a hatred of sin. And in so doing, may we become a people more humble and more in love and more worshipful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.